Welcome to Breaking Green, a podcast by Global Justice Ecology Project. On Breaking Green, we will talk with activists and experts to examine the intertwined issues of social, ecological, and economic injustice. We will also explore some of the more outrageous proposals to address climate and environmental crises that are falsely being sold as green. I am your host, Steve Taylor. With radical changes to the Earth's climate threatening more catastrophic flooding, fires, and even food insecurity, large agricultural companies are now promoting what they call climate-safe agriculture. But are these companies really concerned for our collective food future, or are they leveraging the very real threat of climate change to promote more industrial monocultures, genetically engineered crops, and the capture of markets from smaller, independent, and often indigenous farmers? With big tech like Alibaba and Amazon now jumping on the agricultural bandwagon, such proposals underscore the burden that big ag places on our planet's climate with its reliance on refrigeration, industrial fertilizers, and fuel for a huge supply chain that promises tremendous convenience at a very large cost to the planet's climate. In this episode of Breaking Green, we will talk with Cartini Simone, a grain activist based in Jakarta. Cartini is a researcher and Asia program staff at Grain, which she joined in 2013 after previously working with the Indonesian Peasant Movement, SPI, and supporting La Via Campesina Southeast and East Asia Youth's communication team. Cartini has a nutritionist and rural development background. She's actively involved with the peasant and rural movements in her country and has been working on the food and agricultural issue for almost 15 years. She supports Grain's partners in Asia to implement the full breadth of Grain's program in the region. Cartini, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, before we get to grain and global warming, I wanted to ask you, what what brings you to the food sovereignty and uh, environmental movement? So I studied nutrition um, in, in the university, and I did some um, field work uh, at that time with the fisher folk communities um, in the coastal areas around Jakarta, uh, where I live. And... Um, it was really shocking to see also the fact that areas where um, these people produce, the, the fisher folk produce some of the best fish, uh, you know, seafood uh, there, but it has the highest rate of malnutrition in Jakarta. And among other, in general, uh, many of the fisher folk areas in Indonesia have really high case of uh, malnutrition and hunger among children. So it was really interesting to see this inequality. For me, it was it was also um, because I've worked on, on nutrition with children for some times, and it was uh, really sad to see, you know, those who have access to the best quality of food actually often don't have, you know, uh, to eat that product. Um, and it's the same um, in um, rural areas and part of rural areas of Indonesia. So you see all this product, uh, good quality product goes elsewhere um, and leaving, um, you know, people who lives and work on that um, really uh, bad quality of food, actually. So there's, there's this inequality of, of accessing food um, and those who are uh, producing it actually don't have much to, you know, for themselves to eat properly and healthy food. 
that's where from there I, I am uh, involved with the farmers movements uh, for uh, some several years, many years until now. Yeah. Well, that brings us to the question of, of, of big agriculture overall versus small, medium and indigenous farming. So could you give us a little bit of the landscape of what's going on with, with, with uh, big agriculture overall? In general, um, right now, many of, you know, small scale or small food producers still maintain to produce, you know, 70, 80 percent of the total global food productions. You know, so that's a huge number compared to big industrial ag. But these actually goes also to the whole supply chain of the that is being controlled by the food ag. Actually, so uh, small f- food producers are very effective in producing, you know, um, diverse and healthy uh, food. But the the big industrial ag is really taking control in a lot of that, including starting from seed, because even small scale they are relying a lot from external input, which is in control by um, the seed industries, big seed industries now. You know, four of the big uh, global seed industries controlled more than, you know, almost 80 percent of the whole uh, sales of, uh, of, of seeds around the world. So they have to pay. And there's a lot of regulations and policies that make small scale farmers have to buy each planting seasons. You know, regulations are made to support big ag to continue growing and capturing a lot of this um, um, diversity of uh, local and traditional diversity of seeds that are present um, to uh, for being in control of, of their you know their marketing process. So um, farmers at the at very start in the very beginning they already rely a lot you know they're being captured they have to buy seeds they have to buy fertilizers. And that this is something that started like in Asia. It started since Green Revolutions in the 70s and continue until today. And now you see, you know, big groups are promoting it um, in Africa. What's ha- what has been f- a big failure actually for small scale farmers in Asia and Latin America previously. So it's it's a process that continued to maintain the control of big ag and they are getting bigger by merging with each other's. Um, we see that process happening a lot in the in the last couple of years now, in the last few years. Um, and, and that's why, you know, before you have like this top 10 big seed industry, and now you just only have like big four of uh, big seed industry. So they are getting bigger by merging each other's. And they got, you know, policies and regulations in support for them. Um, so farmers are really small scale uh, are really in, in trouble because of that, um, even though they are being very, you know, um, how you call it, um, efficient in producing food. You know, they, they produce more diverse food in a small plot of land that can produce healthy and nutritious food compared to large scale of uh, monoculture productions that big ag is controlling. And now we see, you know, the type of food that we are eating is very limited. You know, the main um, uh, um, food, uh, staple food is only like, uh, there's a few of it, wheat, rice, corn. Um, so it, it really um, um, supporting this monoculture plantations that are being, uh, you know, being led by the big ag. 
So uh, overall, that's like the challenges that we are living right now. Um, and I think um, there are many initiatives, but of course, um, the challenge is also because the big act is getting bigger. As I said, they're merging among each other. And also they're being supported a lot by, by government policies. So is there also the situation where, where different governments, because Grain is a multinational organization, but different governments support corporate initiatives through regulations or, or let's say maybe seed patenting? Yes, um, that is very, very common, um, and that's growing um, a lot. Um, the way seeds are being patented and through and, um, countries are being pushed into doing so through free trade agreements, for example, um, especially um, being pushed through uh, free trade agreements um, when they um, start, um, countries in the developing countries, for example, are being pushed into free trade agreements with U.S., uh, Europe or Australia or Japan, they are, uh, you know, being mandatory to be um, to uh, change their seed laws and regulations um, to allowing this seed patenting um, and limiting access, you know, rights of small scale farmers to even use their own seeds or exchange among uh, each other's. So they they are forced to buy every season. Uh, for that, um, and that that is happening and, and is spreading a lot um, in Asia. For example, many countries, Indonesia, and right now are being um, pushed to join that uh, process of of uh, changing our seed laws through trade agreements with European countries. Um, Thailand also uh, are facing the same thing. Even Japan are forced to change and even create a stricter seed regulations now that they are entering free trade agreements of the the, the Pacific wide, the CPTPP, um, which is um, actually uh, very much um, forcing countries to change a lot of their, their own uh, national regulations to comply with. So these, these changes and these pressures on the small farmers, indigenous farmers, have huge cultural impacts, do they not? Oh, yes. <laughs> definitely, definitely, because um, one thing, it erodes a lot of um, biodiversity because it's being captured by uh, uh, seed industries that farmers are forced to use hybrid seeds that are being sold in package. Usually it's so, sold together with, with agrochemicals uh, to use together. Um, and, um, you know, these type of seeds that are not allowed to use in, for the next planting seasons. So because there's pattern tied to it, so they have to buy every planting seasons. So it really changed the culture. And you see a lot of uh, traditional seeds are um, disappearing. Farmers also um, losing their knowledge to uh, breed uh, local and traditional seeds because they are, you know, for generations now um, since the 70s to use hybrid seeds um, in, in, you know, productions. So it, it changed a lot of, of the culture um, and also changed a lot of the, the eating culture because I give examples of Indonesia. We're known as, as um, rice-eating countries. You know, we eat rice three times a day, but that's not the case before. We have uh, we eat diverse staple crops, but... Um, when green revolutions happen, we are being forced, uh, you know, farmers are being forced to to grow only rice for staple crops. So more than 50 percent 
of the farmers in small-scale farmers, I'm talking small-scale farmers in Indonesia, are now rice farmers. They only grow rice, and the type of rice is also only the white rice. Before we have diversity of red and black rice and brown rice, um, or you know, different different staple crops. But that does really change over the years, and now you know there's only white rice, um, and countries uh, also are relying on each other, like Philippines um, and Vietnam and Thailand and Indonesia. Um, many of the the exporter actually control the tradings of of rice at the international market. So, for example, um, even countries like Indonesia and the Philippines, who are um, rice producing countries, actually, we are forced to import a huge number of rice each year because there's a quota <laughs> that we have to import a certain uh, amount of rice um, each year. And so that it's actually um, affecting also the price at, um, at this uh, uh, farmer's level. So there's a lot of implications happening because of that. Could you tell us a little bit about the situation in India and the current status of the farmer protest? So it's been nine months now, uh, ongoing farmers' protests. So we've seen some of the biggest uh, mobilizations earlier this year, despite of the pandemic uh, really, really creating a lot of problems in the countries. But farmers are, are mobilizing in a big way. Because recently, last year, the governments tried to change three farm laws, with, which actually gives a bigger um, rights to, to corporations, actually, to control the, the food and agriculture market. Because in India, until now, the, the food and agriculture market is still in the, in the hands of, of the farmer, of the you know, it's being controlled by the government. They have uh, what's called Mandi. It's the big bazaar where, uh, you know, all these uh, productions of the farmers are being collected and then distributed to the small markets. But then the government tried to open this and allowing private sector to take control of this uh, retail uh, market. And, um, and farmers are obliged to be part of the contract with, with these uh, big retailers and there's no minimum support price, which is a, a big problem in many countries before. And India still have it. And now the governments in India wants to uh, cancel that minimum support price for agriculture product. Um, and that's why farmers are, are protesting, because they, they realize that uh, what happened is the, the private sector will allow to dictate the, the price, you know, at some point. Um, and farmers have to accept that, you know, they don't have any other options if there's no standard of minimum price from the government. Um, and um, the cost of productions already doesn't cover, you know, and, and that's why you see a lot of this uh, suicide case because farmers are being indebted for, for many years and they don't have ways to repay it. And um, and so often the the head of the family will do suicide, so the, the that will be cancelled. Um, so that's really a, a terrible situation, and it happens across um, across the country. And that is why um, the, the, this recent changes on the tree laws in in India really you know make farmers protesting. They coming you know to the street. They sleep in the street for weeks, for months, um, because you know, they realize that's the only way um, because w if the laws are being implemented, it's just the, s the same as 
you know, suicide for them because um, they they won't have you know enough um, support for the uh, you know to, to support the family. Um, so I, I think that is something that that really shows how a big ag is taking the whole supply chain of food and ag, um, and why farmers are, are really protesting even until now as we speak. Well, that's a horrible dimension to all of this. I mean, for people to commit suicide, to uh, enact debt cancellation, it's just, it's a horrible situation. This is your host, Steve Taylor, and we will be back right after this. Global Justice Ecology Project partners with small nonprofits when a group or organization whose non-for-profit work closely aligns with our mission by becoming a fiscal sponsor. This helps them minimize bureaucracy so they can focus on their crucial work for ecological and social justice, forest protection, and human rights. GJEP is proud to sponsor the Center for Grassroots Organizing. The center helps organize mass social movements with space where people from different fields can spend time together, share resources, get creative, and build collaborative strategies. Their purpose is to build grassroots organizing, education, training, direct action, and other efforts to help unite contemporary social movements into an effective mass movement. Each summer, they hold Uprise Youth Action Camp, an amazing week of teen empowerment, creativity, action, and friendship, all while strategizing for our collective future. To learn more, go to grassrootscenter.net. Welcome back to Breaking Green. Before we get to the climate, I wanted to ask another question about Big Ag overall, and that's now uh, Alibaba and Amazon are even part of this. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's the interesting thing because, you know, now everything is digitalized and that's the way, you know, uh, even governments are promoting, you know, they say digital agriculture. And uh, like Amazon and Alibaba are among the first who jump into this because they start as um, distributions companies, right? They provide service for online distributions. But for that, they also need to secure their supply, Uh, They need to make sure that, uh, you know, uh, consumers can get whatever they want from wherever they want. So they jump into this whole um, process of of agriculture. So before they they only sell other non-agriculture, non-food and agriculture product, but they see that there's a need to that. You know, it's a it's a huge market. People have to eat all the time. So um, uh, and especially uh, with the pandemic last year, we see a huge increase of their profit because people avoid going to the supermarket or your or local fresh market and turn to online shopping to buy groceries. Um, and that's why um, um, like Alibaba and Amazons, they feel like, OK, we need to be part of this and how we, how we need to secure our supply. And then they realize it's not enough to do it. They also need to have a store. And, and that's why uh, like Alibaba and Amazons are among the first who actually lead to, to this um, uh, uh, unmanned, they call it unmanned stores, where all is um, managed by artificial intelligence. You know, consumers can just go um, and take whatever they want. And they paid um, 
directly, you know, with there's no cashiers in the stores. Um, so um, that that is why also companies like Alibaba and Amazon are investing in agriculture a lot. Alibaba even have and bought a huge um, dairy farm in New Zealand, not just one, but 29 dairy farms in New Zealand to secure supply of dairy to uh, consumers in China and elsewhere um, every day. So um, they see the need to control the, the entire supply chains from the productions to their warehouses, because that means, you know, they can, uh, you know, make promises to the consumers that you can get anything from anywhere um, around the world. Um, even some of these big um, uh, retail stores, they promise like you can get any fruits or vegetables from anywhere around the world within 48 hours. So you just click. Um, like if I want, I'm sitting in Jakarta and I want something like strawberries, which we don't grow and we don't have it here from anywhere uh, that's fresh. You know, I can just choose from my, you know, my apps and it being delivered fresh, um, to my door in 48 hours. That's what they're being promised, but it's not, you know, there's the, uh, the whole technology and infrastructures that need it behind it. It's very, uh, big and, and important. Because then you have to secure infrastructures, you have to secure warehouses, you have to secure packaging, um, and that actually, um, actually, very much linked to climate. <laughs> so that's interesting. I mean, you know, being able to order strawberries in Jakarta and have them, you know, within forty-eight hours is exciting from a convenience point of view. Yes, but as you noted, there's a huge infrastructure surrounding that. And uh, you mentioned impacts on climate. So industrial farming, we know, produces nitrous oxide from fertilizers. You know, there's this heavy machinery. You have the refrigeration in the supply chain. It often involves deforestation. And you have all the emissions from transportation. So we have convenience. We have these big corporations pushing small farmers into monoculture, and there have all these cultural implications, as we discussed some of the most tragic in India, though it's happening in a lot of countries. But now, it seems to be that this push towards monoculture is is now part of climate-safe agriculture. Could you tell us a little bit about that and how that may be somewhat misguided? Yeah, so in one one side, you see, as you rightly said, consumers only see convenience, you know, but we live in, in, in an era of climate crisis and actually everyone needs to understand that there's sacrifices actually we need to take and that's not easy for, for people to understand um, and, and that's why it continues to perpetuate this uh, cir- this um, cycle, you know, because then uh, corporations uh, coming in and claiming that oh we we produce in a climate smart agriculture way we are securing water uh, and we produce better than the small um, we treat the soil better than the small scale producers but there's huge aspects of um, of is that the use of agrochemicals the uh, packaging storing and transportations that will continue to emit um, greenhouse gases in a huge number if people, um, you know, doesn't really change the way things are being produced or consumed. You know, I think we need to 
realize again that maybe we don't need to eat strawberries in Jakarta. <laughs> you know, we have so much other food uh, or fresh. You have, we have uh, mangoes all seasons, you know, or other, um, you know, local productions that are being uh, produced closer to our distance and maybe produced by, you know, in a more, actually a more uh, environmentally friendly ways than the way corporations who claims that they produce their um, their food um, through a climate smart agriculture, because um, many people, especially when when before you talk about Alibaba and Amazon's, many of this um, many of this um, uh, digital companies are promoting services that um, that this uh, the technology that they said it's better for climate. Um, technology that says you can use sprinklers better, you know, uh, you can manage it through your phones, the way you spread your um, or your uh, pesticides. And also um, many of these um, food industries are saying that you can even trace how um, the, the product that you bought in the supermarket are being produced in um, a sustainable way or not through blockchain, you know. But the energy that it's needed to even create that blockchain uh, is a huge um, uh, resources and it's heating up the planet very much. So, um, and, um, you know, we need to think where our food is coming from, actually. And it's not just, um, you know, the way corporations as, are saying that, you know, Oh, we we uh, produce with less water. We produce in in a more ethical ways. Um, but in is it really that way? Because um, you know it's being transported from Brazil, for example, through like soya being transported from produced in Brazil and sell in Indonesia one third of uh, even lower than the the local price. You know um, the way it's. Um, making consumers continue to rely on their productions in that in that way is really, you know, we need to take into account the whole packagings, the whole transportations process that are being, um, you know, um, put in, in place to make make that, um, you know, this long distributions uh, continue. Um, and and food and ag corporations are really number one obstacles, if I may say, to achieve a meaningful actions on um, on climate crisis also because um, they want to continue produce in a massive way as it is now they don't want their profit to uh, reduce but um, they're coming up with all this um, uh, I call programs like uh, net zero ambitions for examples but they don't have the capacity to do it like Nestle for examples they have an, a net zero ambitions that actually will um, include, they need to offset 13, mil, uh, 13 megatons of, of, carbon, uh, million, of carbon dioxide a year. Um, and that means that they have to replanting, you know, 4.4 million hectares of land every year. And where is the land, you know, whose land that they're going to use? Um, and so they're coming up all, all this climate offset and, and, communities who lives inside and around the forest in countries like Indonesia and Brazil's and Malaysia are the one who have to, you know, take this burden because big ag doesn't want to reduce the way they produce um, or doesn't want to 
reduce their profit. Um, you know, so as you said, because this is this is really a time that we need to think. You know, all all this convenience that we have, should we continue like that? You know, because there is an implications um, that um, that really happening fast, and we see in everywhere. You know. Um, even in the U.S., you are now facing with hurricane and, and, and you know floods, and we've also experienced that for years. And we are island country. Indonesia is an island country, and many of the island, small small islands, we are are being tried to disappear with the increase of the of the sea level. So I think it, it's sort of yeah a process where we need to think um, our, whether you know. This part of convenience that we need to sacrifice, actually. So big ag is pushing for these climate safe agriculture solutions to climate change, and they, you know, they're promoting genetically modified seeds and and pushing these technologies, which actually, you know, pushes for more monoculture, more cash crops, and and that big infrastructure we were talking about. Would it be more beneficial to allow indigenous cultures to do what they know how to do best, sustainable, local agriculture? Yes, because now you see many communities are turning back to local varieties. Because especially in the middle of the climate crisis, we received so many reports how communities um, from Philippines, from Thailand, from India all the way to Africa, um, they also, they share stories of how um, communities are, are trying to find or trying to use again the local varieties because it is more drought resistance, it is more flood resistance, but not in the way that are being promoted by the seed industries because the seeds are something that's been grown in the, in the area um, and already you know, have a, a capacity to adapt with this, with the surrounding. Um, so that that's why it, it can survive better when, you know, there's a longer, longer dry season or there's um, um, heavy rain happening in the area. And communities uh, start really saving, you know, um, the traditionals and, and indigenous seeds that they see it's more... Um, um, sustained to the to the changing climate, actually, um, and um, for examples in in the Philippines, um, farmers community they start to mapping out different seeds or rice seeds that uh, can resist uh, saline water better. You know that they, they can grow along the coastal areas because um, it um, with the uh, intrusions of of sea. To the area, you need um, a, a seeds that sustain a, a higher saline water um, level. So um, communities are really um, trying to find ways to adapt to the changing climate. Also, for example, um, as I mentioned, there's an increased um, uh, pest attack over the years. And if you grow um, in non-monoculture way, you have a better chance to survive uh, your productions because the pests won't eat them all um, together. They might eat the rice, but you still have the corn or you may, you know, have some vegetables survive from the pest attack rather than if you grow in monoculture and once the, the you know, the pest attack, you lose everything at once. 
So that kind of um, practices, actually, if small farmers are in many places, are really start to do um, uh, because they realize and they notice it. It's the best way to survive. Um, maybe like maybe if they cannot produce for the market, but they can produce for their families or for their neighbors and for you know people who are around them. And I think um, and that's why I was saying that before how we can you know. Uh, consume food with uh, uh, that is being grown and produced closer to us, um, not relying so much of the global food market. There is a big push, as as you noted, uh, by big ag uh, with the climate safe agriculture. Are you concerned that that may be an, uh, a further attack on uh, food sovereignty? Um, right now, yes, because as you see, there's been a very uh dominate corporate captures in the UN system uh, that the even um, at the UN level they are trying to promote um, um, green revolutions <laughs> that are being used uh, uh, over the years and continue until now in areas like in in Africa um, because um, you know, Corporations have ways to lobby governments, have ways to lobby um, policymakers at an international level to allowing them to continue the way they are producing um, as as now, as it is now. Uh, For example, I would give like um, Norway is one of the the countries that's seen as a champion for climate change. You know, they they provide billions of dollars uh, to curb deforestations in many places. Um, last year, even they give 56 million US dollar to Indonesia to for um, uh, maintaining the, uh, you know, the deforestations. Um, but they never tackle their own industries. They never question or they never um, ask their industries to stop the producing as it is now. For one of the biggest uh, fertilizer companies in the world, Yara, are own almost half it by the Norwegian government. Um, and they are sitting in the Global Climate Alliance um, to, um, you know, and to promote ways of, of producing, um, continue to use uh, the climate smart agriculture that they are proposing, you know. But as you say, as you know, like the fertilizer in, um Agrochemicals and fertilizers have contributed so much to to the greenhouse gas. You know, nitrous oxides, um, methane, and others are more potent even than carbon dioxide. But the seed industries like Yara are never questioned by Norwegian companies, or the way you know the Norwegian fishing industries are one of the biggest in the world right now, and they are selling and um, you know capturing fish and selling it throughout the world. But their way of productions are never been questions, you know. But the responsibilities to protect the forests are are now given to conservations group or others to maintain, uh, you know, a piece of land where you know where forests are still intact, but driving away communities and and villagers who live in that area, you know, f- to offset the the emissions that are being um, produced by these industries. So, um, you know, in a way, um, it seems like the, the, the 
the the, the big uh, food and ag industries continue to promote themselves as a champion of climate by promoting you know their own um, their own strategies their own um, you know tactics to deal with climate but never questions uh, the way of productions but never questions the way it's being transported throughout the world you know um, they're just offsetting um, the their emissions somewhere and asking you know um, communities to leave out their their forest areas to leave out their their land so this uh, this uh, corporations can continue to produce as it is so the question is, where will the, the forest community live, you know, <laughs> where uh, and meanwhile, the forest communities have been have the experience to maintain the forest for decades, you know, um, because they rely on the forest to live. It's not just it's not just the forest, it's their living space. You know, they rely on the river, they rely on the, on the trees, they rely on, on everything, the living things in the forest. And so they they know be better how to protect it because they don't want to destroy it and they don't want to change it as to become you know a tree plantations. Um, so big ag uh, are promoting this way of of of, of um, net zero or nature based solutions. Now they use the word nature based solutions um, as a way to continue producing and to continue their business as usuals while expecting. Uh, others to take responsibilities of of taking care the the problems that they cause and and then they they promote themselves and say oh we've done this you know uh, nature based solutions somewhere else um, so uh, we have the the forest that captured all our emissions but the question who owns the forest you know the big <laughs> doesn't own the forest you know they just paid. They, they paid a, a certain amount of money and to continue to 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 produce as it is and that is not sustainable and especially in time like you know, like now you know we are living in through a really climate crisis and it takes a you know a drastic effort to cut the productions and the emissions the way it is now um, being done. Yes, it, it appears that there's very little uh, being done about actual emissions, uh, but there's more and more burden being shifted to the global south. I wanted to ask you uh, about big ag and shifting from food production to fuel production. Isn't that a bit of a concern as well? Well, definitely, because we, we've seen that. Uh, over the years, actually, when when there's the whole promotions of, of biofuels happening, um, and several countries are still using it, I think now um, um, the way there's been a huge competitions of producing um, uh, food to for fuels, uh, the use of ethanol from corn or cassava, for example, that also am impacting. Um, a lot of um, areas and productions uh, in the past and until now, um, one of this there's the the one who that is still uh, used a lot is the biofuels from oil palm plantations, and that really a huge problem uh, because um, the global productions uh, almost ninety uh, percent of the global productions of oil palm only comes from two countries, Indonesia and Malaysia. So we are taking a lot of burden of producing um, 
um, you know, uh, oil, not just for uh, food and industry, cosmetics, but now also for fuels. Um, and so the intentions is to expand even bigger oil palm plantations still. Indonesia now have 14 million hectares of oil palm plantations. That's a huge number. Um, and already, you know, cutting so much of the rainforest. But the government still intend to expand into more than 20 million hectares um, in the next uh, few years um, because of the huge demands still continue um, for biofuels, uh, for, you know, the use of vegetable oil for the industries. So the oil palm and the production of the oil palm, that, that mono, monoculture, is that causing deforestation? Oh, yes, definitely. It's, it's really, it's huge deforestations happening. Uh, almost the entire rainforest in Sumatra already gone. Uh, now they are expanding very quickly in, in, the, in, in Kalimantan, in Borneo. It's also almost entirely gone. And now they're targeting the new uh, frontier in, in Papua, uh, where there's still a lot of intact uh, rainforest. But big companies are coming in, uh, you know, big uh, plantations for oil palm coming in in a very massive ways. And in just 10 years, it grows from just 2 million hectares to over 20 million, you know, in, in, that, in that area. So it's just, um, it's something that, that, that uh, you know, the, the, the rate of deforestations from oil palm plantations is really, is really terrible. It seems like there's just no magic bullet that, that maybe we need to look at, at how much we're consuming. That's kind of what I'm taking away from this. Oh, definitely. Yes. <laughs> Cartini, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to comment on uh, for this episode? Uh, I think you cover a lot. <laughs> I think you cover a lot. Uh, um but I just want to, one thing I, I want to say that, you know, we've seen the failure of, of the previous uh, RED project that, um, that's being promoted, um, as, as, as you mentioned about the tree plantations and the evictions of uh, forest people from their area and from their territory. And now it's being repeated again under the same name, uh, Nature-Based Solutions. Um, so I just want to say that, you know, um, this is something that that the, that big industries and corporations coming up with new names of, of something that's been failed for the last 15 years um, because they just want to continue producing and profiting as it is now. But um, there's really a need to cut down all, all, all the productions um, and the industry's uh, activities really uh, very quickly. Uh, <laughs> So that, that's just uh, an addition of, you know, it's just another name for something that's being used before. I think we need to be very ca uh, cautious of, of giving all these new names of something that's not working in, in the past. Well, thank you, Cartini, for joining us. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to Breaking Green, a global justice ecology project podcast. To learn more about global justice ecology project, visit globaljusticeecology.org. Breaking Green is made possible by tax-deductible donations by people like you. Please help us lift up the voices of those working to protect forests, defend human rights, and expose false solutions. Simply text GIVE 
G-I-V-E to 1-716-257-4187. That's 1-716-257-4187.